everyone, and welcome to Fem on TV. I am back here with my wonderful co-host Ada to talk about Dickinson season three. Hopefully, you've listened to us talking about season one and season two. If you haven't, go and listen to those and watch the show, obviously, because it's fantastic. We are very excited to have you back. I am either very low on energy or going to have some manic energy, so let's see how that works out in this episode. Uh, throwing over to you, Ada. Hello, how are you, my lovely? Hello, I'm glad to be here um, and glad to be talking season three of Dickinson. It, I found it slow to begin. I didn't get into it right away, but once I did, I was really into it. Um, and um, we've got a couple of exciting guests today. It's been you and I for the last couple of shows, but I, um, I'd love to start by introducing our first guest, Amy, who introduced me to the show Dickinson. Would you tell us a little bit about your Emily Dickinson origin stories? <laughs> yeah, thank you, Ada. Um, I guess Emily Dickinson is one of those historical figures that I'm obsessed with because she has a life sort of cinematically set up similar to Hamilton's successful because he just so happened to have a life that makes a great story arc. Um, <laughs> no offense to Lynn, but that's true. And that's true of Emily Dickinson. And mm. she's a figure that is one of the earliest American experimental poets, one of the first feminist poets. Um, and she's so shrouded in mystery. And I guess that's where a lot of my interest about Emily Dickinson uh, come to light. And that, you know, a lot of my mom's family is from that area. So I'm always very curious about sort of the like gross early <laughs> Massachusetts undertones. Um, of America and how they have slowly dispersed across the country. So that's where my interests come into play. And I'm always very curious about how anachronistic media can not only revive an interest in history, but help us question history in juxtaposition with the present. And I love the M dash, and she's the queen of M dashes. <laughs> That's all I got. <laughs> so good no, luck to our, next, our next guest for following that. I was like, <laughs> I'm just like, I really like this show. Now I'm reading some Dickinson. And that was like, <laughs> so. Uh, That's enough. Yeah. Thanks. Tony Farina, welcome back to Femon TV. And thanks for Hello. thanks for joining us. Will I'm, you I'm excited to be on Femon TV, by the way. Um, I just want to say. It's cool that we're all here in this way, in this weird, you're wearing your yin-yang shirt. I have my yin-yang tattoo, of course. And here's the thing about it, is that I introduced you and Rhea. It's true. And Amy introduced you to Dickinson. So here we all are, all swirling around each other. We're all dots and blacks and whites. So it's very exciting. So um, Emily Dickinson, it's weird, I realize... Um, my favorite, you, you mentioned about her being shrouded in mystery, Amy, like some of my, my favorite writers are the ones that their work has to stand for them. And I realized that is true. So um, for different reasons, like Kafka, his work has to stand for him. And we didn't get all of his work, right? 
Jane, how would be thy name? Uh, Austin, her, we, we, you know, like her sister burned all of her letters. Vinny was supposed to do that. And that actually comes up in season three and it's, it's beautiful. And I just like, oh, cause uh, it, Jane's sister, uh, Jane Austen's sister did do that. She was like, okay. Um, and you're like, suck. Whereas, you know, and so uh, Salinger, uh, there's something about that these, these, these writers who stand on their own and like when you go further back and one of my favorite Americans in the history of world who who's important to us Ada because she's a Michigander she ended her life in Michigan Sojourner Truth shows up and again she's shrouded in mystery and the way that she's portrayed in season three is how I want her to be um, <laughs> um and so I I really love that and so again what what makes her fascinating is all we know about Sojourner Truth is what she told us in her writing as because there's not much else there so that's a kind of, I've always, I'm just realizing that as, you know, think about Dickinson. So I'm a big reader, as you know, I grew up reading. And so Dickinson is also the reason that I don't think I can be a poet because she's so good. And I know you and I have had this conversation, Ada, and you're like, just write it. But um, she's, but it was intimidating. You know, as a young person, I read everything ahead of time. You know, I've read Emily Dickinson before she was assigned to me. Um, and so... So it was just, she's so intimidating because she's so much better than everybody. Like she like had is, that's how I feel like in the greats in the Pantheon. And we obviously see Whitman in this and we meet some of her contemporaries throughout the series. I just always was so in awe of her ability to do things in such a sparse way. So huge fan. So when we knew the show was coming out, we didn't know what it was about. We didn't care. We're like, oh, Haley Seinfeld, whom we've loved since we first saw her burst on the scene as Maddie Ross in, um, Grit, which she's a revelation in that. So we've been fans. My wife and I have been fans of her ever since. So whatever it was, we were in. And then Jane Krakowski's in it. So then when we saw season one, episode one, we're like, oh, my God. We thought it was going to get canceled. We're like, they're not going to let this show keep going because it's too good. And yet, so here we are at the end of season three. So I'm thrilled. Um, we, we've watched along as it came out and, um, this was our reason to get Apple TV was this show and the other shows on there turned out to be very good, but this was the reason we actually got it in the first place. So that's my, there's my Emily Dickinson love letter to Emily and, um, and the show is brilliant. So thanks for having me on and Amy, nice to meet you. We've not met before. I know. So good to meet yeah. you too. Hello. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like Amy started all of this, right? We yeah. wouldn't be here without you. <laughs> Is that a little pressure? You know, we can we can thank a three month free subscription to Apple TV. <laughs> <laughs> they love to do that, don't they? Yeah, uh, that's so good. So I'm guessing. I mean, I'm not guessing. I know it's clear, and I've spoken to you all sort of individually, not you so much, Amy. That the first two seasons we we're all really big fans of. Season three for me is a really bonkers season. I feel like they went, this is our final season. Let's just go with it. And let's just do all these random ideas that we've had in our heads. For me, they work incredibly well. What do you all feel about the sort of where, where the, where the story goes in season three? I mean, I like by the end, I'm like weeping both with sadness and joy at the end of it. But like, for me, this is my favourite season. I know that technically season two is stronger and it's probably better writing and better episodes overall. But for me, because I 
I started watching this when I I'd started on season three when Ada and I were talking about doing this. And I went, I'm going to stop and I'm going to not watch any further, rewatch the first two seasons for our chats and then go and do season three. So I do think I've had the benefit of just bombing through all three seasons and going, they've lost, they've lost their minds in the, in the best way. This one, absolute bananas. And they're going for it and I'm here for it. Um, how about, how about the rest of you, Amy? I'll, I'll throw you in first. I took a very long time to watch season three. I breezed through season one, season two. That's when Ada and I were talking about it. And I was like, oh my God, you have to watch this. And then I got to season three and I was like, I don't know if I have a Civil War season in me. Uh, So it has taken me a long time. I've only seen the final episode once. I hardly remember the final episode. Um, but I've been re-watching the rest of it. And to me, there's something so good about this season where we've taken the sexy character of Death, who is sort of the long-standing love interest other than Sue. And in many ways, he's replaced by the reality of actual death. You know, of course, people are dying in the other seasons, but not to the degree that they're dying in the Civil War. And that this season opens with this whole question of war poets and why isn't she seen as a war poet? Mm. And to me, that's really what ties this season together. Yeah, and I think that's... Whilst you were saying that, that's really made something click in my head for me. I think I spoke to Ada about it. I rant about this a lot, how in the the English education system, you basically study male war poets from World War One and World War Two, and that's it. White men, and their poetry is fantastic, don't get me wrong, and like, you know, they are greats for a reason, but that's it. That's what you get. And you don't really get anything outside of that. And I am somewhat of like an English history buff but outside of that not much and it's something I've been trying to educate myself on like over the past 10 years and I I still find the American Civil War completely overwhelming to get my to get my head around um and I'd like that in this season it's really clear like season two I'm you know I'm getting the build up for it and I'm like okay I've got some background knowledge so I, I kind of get it I'm getting there but I think season three it doesn't shy away from everything and it for me as somebody who's very outside of that history it's very impactful and exactly what you said when you were talking then it I think that's why it I enjoy this season it really speaks to me and I'm so sorry this isn't coherent because I've just thought of it right now but it is why is she not recognized as a great war poet and actually maybe I feel that on my second watch of season three you know why why can't she have a voice first of all why isn't why doesn't Henry have a voice it's not even get me started on Henry it'll just be me talking for the next 45 minutes but then you know she is able to as we hear in the final episode she is able to reflect everything that's going on in war through the power of her words without being there and that is really interesting I'm going to go away and explore that and come back with a question in a bit because I'm now rambling uh, <laughs> Tony what are your over, overall thoughts about season three well I think well there's one thing I want to say um 
to sort of answer the question. You you do that to yourself often, Rhea. You don't realize you ask brilliant questions because you don't hear them. That's why you have your own show called Rhea's Question. Um, so uh, because you do ask. So, but the question you asked is why isn't she a war poet? And I think the answer is uh, because she wasn't there. And we have this idea that you can only experience, you can only have a comment on the thing. And especially this is more true for women, of course, than it is for men. Because, mm-hmm. you know, men all the time comment on what it's like to have a baby. So fuck off. Um, but it, obviously there's that double standard. So so there's that. Um, so to me, that's the answer. The answer is she wasn't there. She was in Amherst. She's an abolitionist. She's the sister of a really staunch abolitionist. She's the daughter of a father who was always leaning that way, but he wasn't, he, he gets there as we see through the series, through, through this. But you know, that's Massachusetts is always cutting edge when it comes to social change. Um, and so she's she was part of that scene. And so I think she's just not seen, we, we historically, we can look back and, it, um, and what Amy said about how anachronistic media can make us reevaluate the media. Like I love steampunk retelling of things like Scott Westerfeld's Leviathan series, his steampunk retelling of World War I was the most amazing way to read about World War One, and to be like, oh, right, okay, by throwing these walking machines in here, I can reevaluate the things that were happening, right? Because they're, they're still the same bullshit happens, even though the technology is different or whatever. So I think that's the problem. I think the biggest issue is people look at Emily and say, well, you weren't there. But of course, all war affects everybody. And so um, I mentioned this on our Paper Girls episode, but um, this to me in particular, so my, you know, my mother was a 19-year-old widow. My older sister's father was killed in Vietnam. So to say my mother and my sister weren't casualties of the Vietnam War just because they weren't there is absurd to say. And so and through Vinny, everybody's favorite character, we see the, you know, the way she's feeling the war in the show, but with Emily, she's losing her friends. She knows her brother should is is, you know, her was one of her best friends. She knows this is really affecting her. And so she's dealing with it. For, and 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 we see her put on a, you know, become a soldier in this season a couple of times. Because she's trying to imagine what it's like because she's feeling real pain. She's being told, oh, women, folk, you guys can't go do, but it's it's affecting them all. So um, so I think that's that's what this this particular season. So I think that's what makes it the strongest of the three. Is it the most hysterical? No. Um, is it the most brilliant? No. But is it the most poignant? Yes. So I think is what makes it the best season is that it is the most poignant, I think. I mean, this is definitely Vinny's season to shine. I mean, she's the hero of the whole series. But I, so that's what I love about it. Like she gets all the jokes. She gets all the lines. How do you feel about foxes? Everything about her is amazing. But because the focus is Emily and and then that whole way that we're pretending war doesn't affect women. That's the conversation. So that was long winded. Sorry, Ada. I know it's your turn. I'm no, sorry. I, I, <laughs> I love that. And I think it really, um, it really sort of strengthened my heart in this contention that the great achievement of this series, and in particular, the third chapter of this series, is to establish Emily Dickinson as a war poet in going forward. Um, she hasn't thus far had that had that um, title, but I think I think one of the really phenomenal accomplishments of the show is to is to establish that. 
So th thank you for that, for that um, spiral, Tony, because it really, really helped me come to that realization that was percolating. And there's Rhea, something, you have thoughts. So I do, sorry, there's something really beautiful when she's, for me, and again, it is from an outsider's view of the history of when she's writing to Higginson. So presuming everybody listening has watched it, she starts writing to, is he, he's a, is he a colonel? General? I can't remember. He's a colonel. I, I can never remember any of them. Um, but, and, what people's and titles They are. say, and at the end, when he shows up, the uh, maid says his name wrong and his rank wrong every time. It's amazing. So yeah. amazing. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. say this this series, this one isn't as hysterical, but that fight, the final episode, like, absolutely in bits. So she's writing to him, and a man who, you know, is there, how much war he's actually seen, let's, you know, think about that in context to actual people who are out on the field and dying and having a horrific time but somebody who has actually been at war and her poetry is speaking to him I found that incredibly powerful I took more from that in the second watch than in the first watch I was very much sort of like you know there's something in literature funny enough Femon co-host Jess Davies is talking about this exact thing in her show, Literature for Life, literature that affects you, that makes a difference to you. And I'm sure all of us in this room and people who are listening have read something and it speaks to them and goes, I feel seen. This sees me. I feel this in my heart. I feel this in my soul. This is an experience that I've had and somebody has written it or shared it. And it's it can be a life-changing moment. And for Emily, who is experiencing everything at a distance, but is still able to understand these core human emotions around war and fear and loss and hope is able to capture that in poems and send it to someone who is there at war, I think is really special and really magical. And I, again, you know, my history is not fantastic on this particular subject, but just the idea that there can be because I know that the Civil War was absolutely terrible, but there can be something hopeful and something bright coming out of that is fantastic, even if her poetry isn't always the happiest of poetry. I think that's really impactful for me. Well, I think, well, I think that that's, that's part of it, right? Is like, so my favorite poem of hers is, is it, it has its own episode, which is one of my least, like, the episode is split. It's the longest episode of my life. It's to the loaded gun. It's my favorite Emily Dickinson poem. It always has been. Um, Adrian Rich writes a poem about reading that poem, which is amazing. If anybody's ever read that, it's super good. Um, Sylvia Plath shows up in this series, who is obviously one of, I mean, she's, you, would, you wouldn't know this probably, but obviously she's one of my all-time favorites. But again, their, their connections are, are obvious. But she's written about that poem. It's just so good. Um, but again, that's part of the thing that always pushed me away from it is it's like, it is so powerful and you always, not just that poem, but her work in general just sits with you, um, and, and, um, makes you feel all the feels. So, so yeah, I, I, um, I just think it's, and it's not necessarily always sad. And what I love about this show, and I would love to hear from our poets tell me this, because I agree with you, Ada or I agree with you, Rhea, that it is, it does feel sad, but, but the way that this show brings the joy, this whole season is a focus on hope. So they're like focusing on some of her more considered dour poems. And they're, we're looking at them through this lens of hope 
So I would be curious as the poets, did you always read her? Like, because obviously Rhea and I both came at her as like, she's not like she was dour, but her poems are sad. Did you guys find hope in them? That was the biggest question I had. So I'm sorry I'm jumping in and asking a question, but I was like, I'm going to be out here with two poets so I can say, did you always find the hope in her stuff? Because I didn't always. And this does allow me to go back and reread her stuff with that lens. I don't, I don't know if I would have gone directly to hope, but I have always, as long as I've been reading poetry, I have been reading Emily Dickinson and finding her poems to be some of the most accessible to me um, in terms of accessing feeling that I don't necessarily have the language for or capacity to express myself. So I find that very hopeful, the ability to access language for a feeling that I can't otherwise um, articulate through through reading and experiencing her poems. I think that's I think that's a pretty hopeful quality of them. What about you, Amy? I feel similarly. Um, I think I've always felt that this simplicity in in images and sort of in some ways a very strange way that she sees the world, particularly in contrast to other poets, male poets writing at that time, that makes the work very accessible, that for me is very hopeful. Um, to me, it feels very similar to looking at HD's work mm. in contrast to Pound's work and sort of her work with imagism sort of making the way she's viewing the world as as a reality that is complex, that is full of horror and sorrow, but that there is hope within that. Um, so yes, I would say that, that it has always seemed hopeful in many ways. And I think that that is something that they constantly are playing with throughout the season in humor in metaphysical moments I was just thinking back to the like Aunt Lavinia she's come back as a bird oh well Aunt Lavinia hated birds mom when's the <laughs> last time you cleaned there's a mouse in the room oh my god Aunt Lavinia loved mice that mouse <laughs> is Lavinia you know and so that it's just these really moments of magical thinking that the show focuses on um, as coping mechanisms that feel very aligned with Dickinson's work. Oh, yeah, now I just want to talk to you about poetry, and now I've got to remember talking about Dickinson. I, I have got a quick poetry question, which is in relation. Do you both as poets find that you only write about what you know, or do you find there's a freedom in writing about things that are that are more outside of very personal what you know experiences I don't at all feel tied to writing what I know instead I for me at least poetry has always been like a gateway drug of sorts or like a, a way to um it's a means to write into the questions, to sit with the questions, to um, to be with things that I can't know, don't know, 
couldn't possibly couldn't possibly know for certain, but rather to kind of sit with the the ambiguity. Um, so I I would I would say that I don't at all feel tied to writing what I know, um, but rather eh, writing into what I don't know helps me understand what I don't know or understand how I could know something differently or at least sit with questions and yeah I think so what about what about you oh that is a tough question like where's my poetic statement um yeah I feel similarly that it's about you know in grad school they say writing into the void everyone's writing into the void whatever that means I think Dickinson was was writing into the void as opposed to Whitman, who's, you know, the first American walking poet, essentially. Um, and I'm very interested in my work of the imaginal bridge between what I know by seeing or experiencing and what I don't know that I can imagine. Um, and I think that's something that is probably intrinsic to most poets. The poets are playing with the imagination always, helping us keep the imagination alive. But that in this series, in her metaphysical experiences, talking with death, foreseeing Fraser's death, talking with him at his funeral, um, all of these experiences, the bird is a spirit. Oh, now the mouse is a spirit. That she's showing that poetry can open up other realms. And that I think as Ada is saying, it is writing into the unknown and writing into those questions where they become possible realities. Yes. And I think- did Reed, I'm sorry, did Reed say that? I feel like I hear Reed by saying right into the void. Is that <laughs> Is that where I heard that? That is probably, it probably originated with Reed or uh, Anne what, or they- or, Okay, I just was like, oh my God, as you said it, I was almost like hearing Reed. I was like, oh, sorry. I know I didn't mean to hijack the show. I just heard it and I was like, oh, that sounds like something. He's, and if he didn't say it, it's, he said something similar. <laughs> yeah, that tracks. <laughs> um. Along, I love that question. And it, as you were talking, Amy, it made me realize that I think one of my favorite elements of this series is how it really translates poetry into television. The construction of each episode, the construction of the images, like I'm thinking of um, when What's-His face is dying and he's swarmed by bees and then she sees this human-sized bee over and over but it takes the poetic imagery and it really does a beautiful job of translating poems into television. Um, and I think making them accessible to people who maybe don't like to read poetry. And I feel that stronger in season three. I, it feels less shoehorned for me in season three. It feels more of a natural progression of that. And I feel it's less intrusive when when the poetry happens in an episode, flapping my hands about, uh, when the poetry happens in an episode, it feels a lot more natural. It doesn't feel like it's <laughs> it's there to be like, just remember we're watching something by Emily Dickinson, who's a poet. 
<laughs> should we talk about the main character herself or should we keep her till the end? I mean, I know who I want to talk about at the end. Which I, is... <laughs> I'm happy to go. And I would follow your lead, friend. Let's go straight as long into as early, I would just like to say, I just want to make sure before the show is over, and obviously we're going to talk about everybody's favorite character. If we can talk about the Greek chorus of Mean Girls, they I love when they show up <laughs> and um, what they represent as the Greek chorus. And I really realized it in this third season that when the four of them show up, um, and I love that Tashaki is part of the team as and he's clearly one of the Mean Girls. They just... When they show up and you just keep like, those are those people in your life. And at first, like season one, I'm like, why are they just always around being such a pain in the ass? And I realized on the rewatch of season three, oh my God, they're the Greek chorus. They're they're giving us what's happened. They're telling us what's going on. And it was such a brilliant move and I didn't recognize it until this season. So I just wanted to, as we go through the characters, I just want to say, I love them all as much as you hate them all. But they, they know what they're doing. All the actors, to quote Rhea, know the assignment and they own it. And they're brilliant performances, but the characters were so expertly woven in because they're in a, in one level that we all have those people that we're stuck with. You're like, oh, that guy. Why is I got to be in the meeting with that woman? And that's Emily. Her whole life is being stuck with people. So, of course, these there's these antagonistic people who are mean to her and mean to Vinny, but they show up anyway. But then you're like, oh, by this season, you're kind of are warm to them and you realize what they bring. So I just wanted to. I didn't know if they would come up, so I'm, I, I just wanted to shout my love to the Greek chorus of Mean Girls. And we will talk about some of the background characters because there's a background character who comes out strongly as one of my favourite characters in this show. Uh, we'll, we'll get to we'll get to. Let's talk about Emily herself. So I feel like from season two to season three, we have quite a progression in Emily. Season two is very much about her tackling fame if she wants to become famous if she wants to be America's greatest poet um and I feel there's quite a leap in her character for a character who is incredibly selfish and self-involved continues to be in season three um but I do feel there is some nice changes going on with her character progression so that when we get to the final episode we it for me it's more emotional than Emily's still a bit of a dick. You know, it 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 has more meaning. <laughs> what are our what are our thoughts of Emily overall in season three? Okay. Um, I think listen, it, in order to um they had to make the choice as as showrunners and as filmmakers, right? Do they, are we going to call her, give her all of her warts? So I like that you say she's a bit of a dick. Um, but we do see her grow up. You guys mentioned in the first episode, you don't really know how old she is in these moments. And of course, as Amy mentioned, this is all anachronistic. So we don't know. Um, we don't know who's old. You know, we don't know any of it. Um, I do think her character progression has come along. I think ha- um, when, with baby Ned being born, that's the biggest thing for her to overcome is because it does put a big uh, wall between she and Sue. And I And I feel like, Sue having Ned actually makes Sue love Emily more. And um, Emily's not ready for that. She wasn't expecting that. She really did think it's a one-way street. And there's that line, you just in love with writing poems about Sue. Um, And now you got to realize you got to love Sue as a person. So I think actually Ned is the, oddly enough, he's only in like one episode. Uh, But I feel like oddly enough, he's the, um, he's the linchpin to the whole thing of her growth is that like, 
having a baby is like, oh, I can't be a baby anymore. <laughs> like there's a real baby. I'm acting like a baby. So I, you know, and what that means, how it changes Austin's life, it's changing her mother's life, it's changing everybody's life by having Ned there. So I think there needed to be a moment. So in addition to us talking about her becoming the war and all of the death happening, and, and as I think you said beautifully, Amy, about her relationship with death and Wiz Khalifa's version of death in particular, but her relationship with him changes too. But that's also it, is because now there's this new life. And this this life, Ned is more important than the rest of us. You know, she saw the person she loves most in the world going through an incredible amount of pain, and that scared her. And so, it, you know, the, the things in the world come at her and move her to um to grow as, as, like as you said she's a bit of a dick so it has to happen to her she wasn't see- seeking it as much i think to the character growth as we see it in the scenes in each episode um it really stays true to the growth in the poetry as we see um and i'm not an expert on when each of these poems was written, but I think um, that the poems in season three, um, as I go back and look at like some of the poems that are included in season one, the poetry is growing. It's more mature. She's still, yeah, she's still kind of a dick. Nobody's going to become a new person overnight, but the maturity in the television episodes, in the scenes that we're seeing, um, I think really aligns with the growth that's it's reflective of and aligning with the growth in the poetry, not necessarily surpassing it. I don't know if that makes sense. It felt more sensible in my brain. Very much makes sense. Yes, I think that's beautiful. I think you're completely right about the maturity. If you go back to season one and watch how they present her character in season one compared to season three, I think there's a huge difference huge difference technically speaking civil war she'd be in her early and mid 30s and then she lived 20 years after the war um so it sort of does make sense when when her mom's like oh i'm so glad you and lavinia will get to are getting to grow old together but you look at Haley steinfeld and you're like what are you 22 um and there are all those confusing things but to me, most people are always a dick in the show in a way that that she doesn't stand out as much, especially in season three. And I think a lot of that comes with being met with these broader realities and realities outside of the house and outside of Amherst, like when they go to the asylum for the day. And she sees the reality of how women are treated outside of her own home. And that changes her perspective. And I do, I agree with Tony that a lot of this is sparked by the shift in the relationship with Sue because Sue becomes a mother. Um, And then, you know, Austin's crazy trajectory changing the family dynamic and then being the executor of the will but learning that everything will still go to Austin. Um, and and it's just sort of like, how many times can the show slap you in the face with the reality of women's lives in Civil War America and how little they have changed? Um, mm. So I think 
for me, it's, it's all of those moments on top of war casualties, um, you know, foreseeing someone's death who actually dies, all of these things that start to destabilize and open this broader picture of life outside of her room, outside of their house, outside of Amherst, and how that starts to really play into her reality as ways of growing up. And that's, yeah, you. it's so interesting, isn't it, that Sue, from the very first episode, has an understanding of the wider world and a woman's place in it. At no point does Sue forget that. She knows that there are things she has to do to survive. Marion Austin, you know, trying to go off and be a governess and then the instant season one and then the disgusting dad of the children, gross, grossness. You know, she knows she's in a precarious position. When Austin says he wants a divorce, Sue knows that that means her, you know, her life is done. She has no options. So she needs to turn this relationship around. She needs to start compromising because we see it at the beginning of season three. She becomes very much about me and mine. It's all about her. It's she, she, ha- she has this wider worldview and it suddenly narrows in and it's just her. It's her and the baby, her and being pregnant. She's, Sue's quite a selfish character, which I really like. I've, all, I've liked that throughout all the seasons. Sue's quite tricky and I like that. I like a tricky woman like a difficult woman in quotes um you know funny enough everybody we're not just all the soft mothering figure that that the world wants us to be um and sue suddenly realizes shit i i cannot be that i don't think introspective is the right word but i can't be that all about me and all about selfishness although she is being selfish i'm not thinking of the right words i do apologize it's been a long day um and Emily's having to open up that worldview. So it's almost they've gone in opposite directions. These two people who love each other, who, you know, we feel are meant for each other. They have this such passionate love for each other. They're always in opposites throughout every single season. They're never together in the same place. And they do the same thing in this season that, you know, this could have been a time for Emily to, Emily to like, this is it. This is our Sue even sister. I want this to be our family. I want us to be a family of three. Doesn't care about Austin. And Emily rejects that, completely rejects that idea because she's finally starting to learn about the world and open up the world and her poetry, her poetry, like everything's about my poetry. I'm going to be the greatest American poet stuff. And they and they're always clashing where they are in their lives. They're never in the same place. It, it at some point each season we get them coming together feeling like okay they're finally going to be happy they're finally going to be a happy couple but it never happens we never get that resolution and yeah definitely Emily opening up to the wider world I love the episode when they go to the institution because it is my favorite background character of Abby who I think just through it then throughout the rest of the season when she finally comes out is like she's getting some of the best lines about women's place in society, about feminism, about repression, uh, about women's rights. Like <laughs> I just every time she pops up and she just gets these amazing lines, I'm just like, Abby, it's like Vinny, Abby, Sue, then maybe Emily. Sorry, Emily, I know it's your show. <laughs> That's how it goes for me. 
And she's a writer. Sophie Zucker is one of the writers of the show. So also, yeah, if you're yeah. going to show up and write your own show, you better give yourself the good lines. Um, but yeah. the fact that she's got the acting skills to pull it off, too. I mean, that's the thing. You can't just give yourself those amazing things and not do them. Because the way that she... Um, don't tell my husband I said that. Like, she always whisper, whispers those things to whoever's around her. Like, just... She says whatever. She's like... Oh. And then when they bring her back from the asylum... I have to say, like, they're all so proud of themselves for getting Abby out of the asylum. And Emily just totally deadpans, like, so we sent her back to her husband who sent her there in the first place. And nobody's like, oh, shit. They're just like, yep. Like, everybody just accepts that line and nobody reacts to it. And it's like, that is the, even she who says it is like, mm, that is, that is the facts. And it just, it, that land, that, yes. Well, I do love her as a character and she is really funny. And I just, I, I, yeah, well said. I'm just going to, I'm just going to climb on that and pretend I said something profound, but all I'm saying is Rhea is awesome. Team Abby. So I just keep on jumping on the back of other people's comments as well and being like, yeah, that's really great. It made me think of something. I'm going to pretend it's an original thought. I'm just being a mediocre white man right now. Uh, to that end, Rhea, um, as you were talking about Sue and Emily being kind of diametrically opposed in their worldviews and keep continuing to move in opposition. I had this thought that in, I believe it's the last episode, that really kind of comes full circle for me. And it's like they go opposite, opposite, and then it finally comes around to full circle when um, Sue is in the kitchen with Miss, Mrs. Dickinson and they're like, Emily's refusing to come down and talk to her biggest fan. And Sue just really like, grabs Mrs. Dickinson and she's like look this is huge for Emily like we're gonna be we're gonna be housewives and we're gonna just like entertain the business out of this guy and put on a show um because what's really important is Emily's poetry and making sure that like her fan has the opportunity to really experience her family go um I thought there's something really profound about that that moment for me and kind of a full circle where cause we start out the series with everybody sort of except for Sue um everyone in Emily's family has no no desire to see her published no desire to see her poems in the world no desire to support her identity as a poet um and it feels like a huge win um once Sue finally kind of takes charge and says this is what's happening we're supporting Emily as a poet, and this is how we're going to do it. And there's no jealousy from Sue. I was really interested how they were going to do that scene because, you know, Higginson comes in and clearly, like, completely enamoured with Emily. And um, and it was like, how is Sue going to react to this? Because every time there's a male suitor, like, Sue gets a bit pissy, even though Emily has to put up with the fact that Sue married her brother, like... <clears throat> All right, everybody, let's stand down a little bit here. Um, and so I was really curious watching this episode of how is Sue going to react? And Sue's just like, this isn't about me. It's not about our relationship. It's about Emily and it's about her poetry. And this this is the moment. Everybody get your shit together. And it's My an favourite line right there, though, I'm glad you brought it up, is the line, Mrs. Dickinson looks at Sue and she says, Sue Gilbert, you are that bitch. And I was yeah. like, that is so brilliantly done. <laughs> Because she says that that's the first time Mrs. Day, Emily Sr. looks at Sue with respect. 
And it's because their their mutual love, their mutual love isn't for Austin. They finally realize their mutual love is for Emily. And that line is so funny. And the way that Krakowski delivers it with that smirk on her face. And you see, oh, I get you. We're going to be okay. It's so good. It, like, it actually, it's played for laughs, but it choked me up both times I watched it. So I was like, that's the nicest thing. And again, because of the anachronisms, but it's the nicest thing she could say, say to Sue at that moment. I just love it. The whole final episode chokes me up. I think it's fantastic. I think it's it unleashes everybody in their absolute glory of their characters and of who they are. And it it you know it, it's not just the emotional beats. Even Vinny in a yarn bombing giant red bag, like I genuinely felt quite emotional because I was like, "This is Vinny. She's not hiding who she is." You know, she says a, a season beforehand, I am not the boring Dickinson sister. It's like, Vinny, you are not. And you just get to be fully yourself. She doesn't care who's there. So I, as I said in the last episode, none of you have heard it yet because in this room because it's not come out. But I said to Ada, I was like, we all need to be more Vinny. Like, I want to be more Vinny. She's an absolute, absolute inspiration. We're going to talk about Vinny at the end. I can't help it. She just comes in. But we start talking about Sue. Let's, should we talk about Sue and Austin? I, you know, I did not expect the whole, I sort of saw it coming with the divorce. So Sue and Austin, you've all, you've all watched it, right? Stop listening if you haven't watched it. Their relationship is a mess. Austin is going, going out, getting drunk all the time, shagging Jane, uh, just they're they're just a nightmare they're just like a terrible terrible marriage they're not making each other happy they don't respect or care for each other but they have a baby Ned who we don't find out his name for the final episode spoilers Tony honestly um (laughs) um and they cannot navigate it together funny enough I was on a a podcast with Mike of Genuine Chit Chat and Alison of Fairmont um talking about having children and parenthood and I was like the number one thing that me and my husband have said is we need to be a team in raising her even if it all goes to shit we need to be a team because we've we've made this human life and we really shouldn't fuck it up like we it's not her fault that we made her it's our fault so she's our responsibility so we've got to be a team and get get our shit together even if we are not together um and Sue and Austin just cannot do that. They cannot do it until Sue suddenly realises her position is very precarious. And do you think her move is pure calculation or do you think she sees something in Austin when he says he wants to be more involved with their baby? Do you think that she genuinely believes that or it is just her going, we're going to get divorced and I'm screwed? I think... One of the talents of this character of Sue, um, both as she's acted and she's written, is that she seems to be able to make herself believe whatever she needs to believe in the moment to survive and to thrive. Um, So I guess I don't really care whether she believes it or not, because I know that it is going to be. Um, And I I believe I guess so. I guess yes. My answer: I believe that I believe it because she, she, that moment, she she makes me believe whatever she wants me to believe. Um. Yeah, I I think that's one of the superpowers of both the writing and the acting of Sue Dickinson in this series. Um, Amy, I know you have particular Austin connections, so I would love to hear your 
your thoughts on on that, <laughs> that moment. Not uh, <laughs> just musical theater connection. Um, I feel the same way you do about Sue. She's the one family member who really has any experience of hardship other than sort of like Mrs. Dickinson romanticizing the farm um, and, and birthing calves on the farm, but that Sue is ready and willing at any moment to change her play for survival and that her number one goal is survival and then the survival of, of their child. And if that can involve time with Emily, great. But once divorce is on the table, everything has to shift. And then we sort of see that shift happen for Austin. I can't remember what episode, but there is one episode where Sue's like, oh, we've gotten rid of gender norms in our house. Austin's with the kid. Um, but then in the second to last episode, we meet the very real reality that Austin has paid someone to go to war for him, which for a time was legal during the Civil War. Um, but it was a brief period of time. <laughs> yeah, your face. Yes, for a brief period of time, rich men could pay people, um, often Irish immigrants, uh, to go to war for them, which is why it was called like the rich man's war, poor man's fight. Um, oh, eat the rich. Ugh. And so it was like five or six hundred dollars. Uh, but then you would get the situation of then someone would take that money and go to war and ditch the war and then find someone else that they could replace and they would just start earning money. But then they made that illegal because clearly was not well, a great idea. Money from it, better make that illegal. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, and this is happening at the time where there are the 1863 draft riot in New York, which is still one of the most violent um, civil rights riots in American history, like 119. That nobody's taught about, by the way. We don't learn about yes. these in school. <laughs> no, we don't. But it, it was featured in a Broadway musical last year, Paradise Square, which premiered at Berkeley Rep, where I worked on it, uh, which then, after I left, premiered Swept Away, which the actor who plays Austin was in. Um, because he's also a singer, which we, we get a little bit of singing from him briefly when everyone has their lovely hard times moment, um, when the family sings hard times, which uh, is like the Civil War American anthem, um, but that in that moment with Austin, we're sort of led to believe that it's because of Ned and he's saying it's because of my family, but really I never believed that. You know, he's watching everyone die. He's not going to funerals. He's not going to farewell parties, all of these things. And I'm like, I think you're just rich enough that you don't have to engage and if jane hadn't dumped him would any would that have ever happened at all no <laughs> those are all hashtag facts so just to blow your mind a little bit more ria about the um 
the paying somebody. If you actually, I've read Gatsby, but that's actually Nick Carraway's whole family exists because his great uncle who founded the family line paid somebody to go. To, that's right. Nick says it right at the beginning. He paid, he paid somebody to go to the war and he founded the wholesale hardware business that my father runs today. So like that whole story is told by somebody who paid somebody to paid somebody to paid somebody. Um, anyway, as soon as you said that, I was like, you know, so, so like. I hate, written... I hate Great Gatsby. So I know. The reason that's not in my head because I think sure. it's a pile of shit. So, so well, that's a different conversation. Hot takes. For hot takes. Hot takes. Do, you, do you want to have my um, Dickinson hot take? Not Dickinson, uh, Dickens hot take yeah. as well, because I've yeah. talked about that a lot. <laughs> um, but I would Boom. say, I would say that, um, what I, I agree, Amy, completely that Austin is totally disingenuous. He's terrified. And there's nothing wrong with being terrified. There's nothing wrong with him saying, like, I don't know that I think Austin, I'm, I don't think George is going to make it back because I don't know that George is equipped for this. And I'm worried because I love George. And I, I, I know that he always misreads his friendship. And I love it how at the end she's like, yes, my plutonic friend. Like, she wants to be very clear. Um like we're going to say the word at the end. Can you just realize we're just like siblings? Dude, stop. Just because we're bonding in this moment. Why do you always keep trying to kiss me? Calm the fuck down. But we know George isn't going to make it. And I know Austin knows he isn't going to make it. And there's, he's dandy. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's just who he is. It's how he was raised to be. Um, he wouldn't have the skills. I don't know that he would survive training. I mean, because Fraser is ready and he faces it like Fraser dies almost immediately. Right? Um and so, so I think you're, it is true. I think, I think it's both things. And that's always a cheat to say it's both. Austin does want to be a different father than his father. But at the same time, he also knows I can't be a soldier because I'll be bad at that. And not that like, I want to learn and be a soldier, but like the juxtaposition of Henry's men that's happening during the season. We see how those men can be soldiers because they have the skills from their shitty lives that can be applicable to be soldiers. Austin doesn't have any of that. Austin doesn't, doesn't know how to do anything that would involve being a soldier. He's just going to go and literally be cannon fodder. And that line is used. Henry uses that line about his soldiers. And so I just find that there's an interesting juxtaposition there. And so, cause every time you're like, why do we keep spending time with these guys? And I think in addition, because Henry, the guy who plays Henry is awesome and we need to spend time with him, but also it's because we need to see how they're totally different than austin also you know henry and his group his soldiers they are they are a team they support each other they love each other they would take a bullet for each other they would die for each other none of austin and his friends would do that and there's the difference between the gentry and the normal people henry and his soldiers they are a team you know they are there for each other they and austin just doesn't have that none of his friends would go to war for him. None of them would, none of them help him home when he's drunk. You know, Henry and his his guys, they they would do that. They would carry you on their back. And that's such a difference between the gentry and, and, and everyday people who have to survive exactly what you said, Tony. We know they win because they have shitty lives and they have had to survive that. And Austin's just sort of like out getting drunk on maple syrup with his mates and yet still looks like shit. None of his mates turning around and saying, get your life together. That would not happen with Henry's group. You know, they teach Henry about friendship and about being there for each other because Henry's so isolated in his own community back in Amherst. They teach him about real community. And, you know, 
when we see him being part of their group, smiling with them, you know, there was there's always something in within in these scenes with Henry. I'm like, I really want him to open up and say that he's writing these letters and he's not sending them to Betty. And he can't do that because he's having to protect that to protect himself. But I reckon they would also turn around and say, you need to send those letters. You've got to do it. They would not part with any of his BS. They'd be like, you send those letters. You need to, you need to do that. She needs to hear from you. And I so definitely between those two groups the dynamics so interesting and they are shot in a way that I think we're supposed to compare them and as even if you don't notice it as a viewer it's there to 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 make you feel the difference between the two groups facts and I just would say too notes for the show notes this will be a Mike Burton thing Mark you got to pay Mike Burton to do the show notes but there's an amazing book uh, it's a young adult book by Walter Dean Myers. It's called Riot. I don't know if anybody's read it. That actually isn't that explains the riot that you talked about, Amy. And it's sad to say I didn't learn about it, as Ada said, until I read that book as an adult, because nobody and I'm a history nerd and I didn't know about it. And then I read some young adult book that comes out in 2011 and I'm like, son of a bitch, history. So, but I do feel it goes back to what Amy said off the top is that when you when you throw in the anachronisms, it allows you to then reanalyze the facts in a real way. And so I do think um, this this Emily Dickinson is a war poem and the pink, everything that you just said, Amy, about paying people and how it was legal for a time and all of that, it's there for us to learn. Because you know, I guarantee everybody who watches this is like, is Higginson a real person? Where that was that was that group was that real? Like, and that's good, right? You add that in there because he was real. That is what he did. All of that is a fact, and people are going to watch the show and they're going to look that up and they're going to find out the real version. You make him interesting enough. You make Henry a fascinating character, so people want to find out the the real story. So I, I do think, while this is a you know, thirty episodes, thirty thirty minute episodes of of, you know, some of it can be considered silly and lighthearted fun, but I do think it is such an amazing re-examination of American history because this is a podcast, but to have seen Rhea's face when Amy said that, I mean, I I know that was horrific to hear for the first time. So it's shocking, but it's also, I'm so glad you brought it up, Amy, because it makes me um, just, again, love this show, just having this conversation so far. It just makes me appreciate the show even more uh, because we can all just keep, learning from a comic it's so good I mean of course that happened of course it did I can't like I but I just you know we know this the horrific realities of life but just you saying it I genuinely that that was a proper genuine reaction I can't the world makes me I've been really angry about the world today anyway so let's not talk about anger let's talk about the awesomeness that is Lavinia Dickinson not Aunt Lavinia Arvini Ah, wonderful, wonderful Vinny. Amy, you you love Vinny, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Dickens is a poet, but Vinny's a performance artist. Um, yeah, and I just love that in season three, she just goes full out into how one can use art to process grief and trauma. Um, sheep no more the best moment of second to last episode best moment where she is explaining her performance art of watching the dying sheep and she explains it to everyone and they all think she's crazy and then she says and there is no audience 
Um, and to me, like, those are the moments. That and then the moment, I think it's the same episode where Emily comes to her siblings and is like, this is serious. Dad's giving Austin everything. And Vinny's like, yeah, when you're not married, that's how it works. I knew Austin would own us. And that she, like Sue, throughout is very, very aware of what is going on. She just processes in a totally different direction, which I think is very exciting and also can help us imagine that, you know, there are all these things like, oh, Emily Dickinson was reclusive, you know, outcast, misfit, wrote all of these books at home, tied them into tiny little books that she never shared with the world but that there's no way she was the only woman that 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 was processing life <laughs> in the 1860s that way. <laughs> um, so I think that lots of very exciting artistic moments happen for Lavinia in this season. Yeah, talk about a woman who gives us a master class in processing anger, grief, and trauma in healthy and artistic ways. The only difference is that her performance art, there was no there was no means of recording it versus Emily's poems are on paper recorded here for us today. It, what I love, I mean, obviously Barishnikov's performance is spectacular. Um, I can't imagine anybody else doing it. And I didn't know who her dad was until like after season two. And we're like, who is that? We got to find out what else she's in. And we looked it up and we're like, oh my God, now that I know who who she's related to, I can't not see him. Like once you know that Mikhail Baryshnikov is her dad, then you look, every time you look at her, you're like, oh fuck, how did I know her? She looks just fucking like him. It's crazy bananas. But what an amazing performance she gives. But what she gives us is joy, unrequited joy throughout this whole series because she is choosing to process her grief through through joy she's like i'm gonna i'm alive still and yes she's like all of my dead boyfriends and all of my dead husbands and that whole thing keeps coming but there's like some part of her that refuses to crack and i think the interesting comparison between emily senior and lavinia jr is you know there's that moment where Everything that Emily Sr. does, Mrs. Dickinson does, is like directed through caring for my family. Doing that. And Lavinia doesn't have any of that. She doesn't have people to care for. She's got her cats and her fox. But that's still not the same, right? It's, it, and so it's what she's made a decision to do off screen is be joyful. Emily's saying out loud, hope, 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 but she's not doing it. She's not. She's giving up a lot and everybody's dragging her along. But what's happening off screen, every time Vinny shows up, smiling and dancing and doing the sheep performance and do it, making the yarn bomb and like just living in her own space. That's as you said, Amy, she's processing her own grief and she's turning it into joy. Whether again, no one gets to see, no, there is no audience, but I'm going to tell you about it. So that, and that what I think was brilliant about that episode is the director chose to show us though. It could have been just every like cut and cut cut to everybody's faces in the party. That would have been good. But the fact that they cut to it back forth, back forth, it was again 
totally bizarre, but it made me feel overwhelmed with joy. And that's the, one of the things that Lavinia has brought through the whole thing is that. And the performance is exceptional. And again, I said it before we started recording, no nominations for Anna Baryshnikov for anything. So that all just proves all the awards are bullshit. I'm sorry. I mean, I like awards. I know Rhea and I were going to do some award stuff. But at the end of the day, how do you how do you ignore that performance? That's some bullshit. Vinny's just truly herself. That's what I love. Like, she's just herself. We know this from the very beginning when they try to shame her for drawing herself naked. She's amazing at drawing, by the way. Um, And it's from that moment, you know, she's just not... She's not going to do what everybody thinks she should do. She's not... She's She knows she's constrained by society, perfectly delivered line from you Amy about well of course Austin was going to own us you know she 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 gets the world she understands it but in her own little part of that world she is going to push against those constraints by just being herself you know we would I hope we've moved on from this language but in sort of like now 2023 would be like a bit like she's the mad lady who lives in the cottage around the corner right you know, who's who's unmarried and has lots of cats. And, well, I hate all of that stuff. You know, at one point she would have been considered a witch, which is awesome, which is first feminists, awesome. Uh, I know there were feminists before witches, but I just like to say it. Um, you know, she would be considered that slightly batty lady, right, that, that talks to you at the shop and you're a bit like, oh, why is that? I love that, by the way. <laughs> My poor husband has to deal with this all the time. The people that, that other people consider to be slightly mad that talk to at shops. Oh, I want to talk to you. Come and talk to me. <laughs> they seek me out and it's awesome. Um, I would be best friends with Billy. Uh, I couldn't but dream. You know, but she, you know, she, she would in lesser hands in a different show be that sort of character, right? And in this show, it's to be celebrated. She is to be celebrated. She is just another woman in this world who is trying to push against those constraints that society has against her, who's trying to express herself and people don't get her because as women, we often have to shout into the void or express ourselves into the void and people around us just go, yeah, that's weird, don't get it. Why are you expressing yourself in that way? And she is that, but in a really, as you said, joyful way. And again, that's this show. This show is joyful, a show that could be dark and depressing. They've decided to show the joy amongst the darkness, which is a theme in all the stuff I'm watching at the moment, um, with with Emily and with her family and with everything that's going on in the world around at that time. Just Team Vinny always. We need to get some Team Vinny t-shirts, don't we? And some stickers and some hats and some mugs. She's amazing. She, she really is. Um, uh, we just... Every single episode, too. It's every time. Because even when they drag a little, even when one of the, you know some of the episodes are like, oh, you know, this one is thirty six minutes instead of twenty seven. I could see where you could cut it. You never cut a scene with Vinny, and every time she shows up, you're in for you're in for a treat. And the, the actress performance, I just can't get over it. And um, I'm like, I'm I've got a list. I made the list of other things she's in. I am going to seek her out, and I. It could be unique to what you've what you've all been saying, the um, writing of the show and the way that they've chosen to handle the character. Uh, but she's definitely bringing some. So I'm going to I'm definitely excited about everything that she has to do. And just this. I think they should all be proud 
of themselves for this show, but for creating, for giving her space. I think what you said, Ada, that whether it's anachronistic or not, that, that Lavinia Dickinson was a performance artist. There is that idea that we know Emily because she wrote it down and that this other layer of art, this idea of if you're a busker and you're just standing on the street corner and you're busking, that's you're making music, you're doing something, and then it goes away. It never exists again because no one was there to record it. So who are you? Think of all of the Vinny is the um, you know the avatar for all the lost art of this of and so I just I, I love that you said that Ada because it's true and you didn't I didn't really think about it. But it was like right how much amazing stuff ne- nobody has ever heard, nobody's ever saw because of whomever you know who whoever controls the gate didn't allow that to get through and you know and emily's poetry is of course transcendent and we should still be reading it but um and i just I, i'm amy i'm so i'm so glad you said that from the beginning i just makes me it's i i the, about the idea that we study anachronistic entertain we do anachronism so that we can think about the real history and so i'm just I I feel like now I need to go back and watch all 30 episodes again based on this conversation because I now have a totally different view of like, what are the cool things that I miss? Because I wasn't thinking at it through this lens. So I just want to say to both of you and of course, Rhea for inviting me, but thank you for being brilliant. I love your excitement, Tony, for like having two poets in a room talking so about cool. Dickinson. <laughs> I, uh, I could just feel it coming off the screen. And, I, and oh. I can tell that you can tell I'm about to start wrapping it up and you're like, Amy, Ada, just tell me more. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, I'm more. done. I'm done. You, I know you're tired. I'm sorry. I'm all done. It's wonderful. I mean, I feel like the same. I feel like Dickinson, amazing, happy to talk about it. But can you two just start talking again and I can just listen in? Because I just, I think that needs to be sort of like my my therapy or something. I don't know. It's really lovely. So thank you both. You're just both amazing. What are we talking about? Dickinson. Um, any final thoughts before, before we wrap up on the series as a whole, on season three? I'm sure we've missed so much stuff. I would have loved to have done a show where we could talk about every single episode, but none of us have the time um and i'm sure that exists somewhere as well anyway so any any final thoughts from everybody so i'll tell you what tony you can go first and then we'll leave the lovely two poets the beautiful talented wonderful poets to to lead us out of the episode i agree i'm with you on that friend uh thank you first again thank you for letting me be here um thank you for letting me be your friends and i'm glad to meet you finally amy i mean you know i know who you are but I don't not met you before. So um, this is cool. Um, I I just say that this is one of those things that um, I appreciate streaming TV for allowing something like this to exist. Like I said, I, there's so many brilliant shows that, that wouldn't, that I, that I know, like I said, we, we watched the first episode. We're like, how is this going to continue? Nobody's going to let this keep going, but I'm pleased. Um, I, I might just, if you've not watched, I mean, honestly, if you're listening at this point, you must have watched Dickinson, but I'm just am thrilled that something like this existed. And I hope that that these filmmakers, that these, these creators are going to do this again with somebody else. Like they're going to find some other person. Like, I mean, the, we've got the Louisa May Alcott spinoff waiting, the actors there, her performance is amazing. Um, so maybe we'll get one of those, but I would love to see that. So I'm just thrilled that somebody, and it's like you say, everybody seems to know who Emily Dickinson is in theory, but just to get to spend some time with her and 
and think big thoughts about her. So I'm just thrilled the series exists. And I just want to say thank you both for inviting me on and lovely to meet you sort of in real life through the screen, Amy, and, and your lovely cat who's there now too. As though they were like, we're talking about cats. A cat has shown up. So thank you all. I'm going to shut up now. That's such a rough moment when all the siblings were like, yeah, Austin will own us. Can we be free? And he's like, yeah, but you got to get rid of a cat. It's like, Austin, we're done. Get out. Like, get out. Austin's Vinny, get really out. grown on me by then. Like, I'm like, you, you're winning oh. me back, Austin. Like, you know, I, I I, like that he's a dislikable character. So when I say he's grown on me, I'm like, I like that we are seeing this on screen. That's fantastic. And we need to see more of that. So as and I'm like, and, you know, he is a shithead. But in some ways, he's kind of trying, you know. So, I, and then so does he's like, you got to get rid of the cats. Out, get out. Done. So done with Austin at that point. What a wanker. Um, oh, I feel like there's so many things that we just don't have time to talk about. The imagining as she's reading Leaves of Grass, she imagines Walt Whitman, who's so flamboyantly discussing death as everyone is dying, and then we learn that little fact. From Josiah Mamet that <laughs> that Alcott was a was a nurse. Um, yeah, so I think we are we are ready for a spinoff of that, and then just to bring it back to Henry and his regiment in that very real reality that the show does not touch on that there were black regiments, but in the north. You weren't drafted because you still weren't considered a citizen or even a human. But in the South, you were often forced to fight uh, for the Confederacy. And then we see regiments like this one in the middle where they're fighting for the North, but they have no training and they have no weapons. So instead, they're going to learn how to read. And it's just horrible. (laughs) I have no other words. For that reality that I think the show starts to invite us into in a way that makes season three much realer than the other seasons. Um, Yeah, so I'm so grateful that everyone has watched (laughs) this show that uh, Ada and I talked about a few years ago. And um, yeah, it was such an honor to come and talk about anachronistic Dickinson with everyone. So thank you, <laughs> Rhea and Ada and Tony. Thanks for joining us, Amy. Um, I, I'm reminded as you're talking about Henry and his, um, his regiment and the reading, how much I would love a spinoff about the newspaper and with starring Betty um, and just the like utter catharsis and like weight off my chest that I felt when Higginson delivered those letters to her. I think that that was worthy of a series finale. Um, yeah, I would I would watch a Betty uh, spinoff on Betty and more more on abolitionist newspapers. Um, oh, and I'm gonna put it out there now. I would love to see a television series about Audrey Lord while we're at it. <laughs> that's what I've got. Boom. If imagine if they make it now, you'll be the originator of that idea. I'll take it. It's hard. I'm really trying to not talk about more and 
and talk about more of the things that you've all brought up because I know we've got to start wrapping it up and I feel like I could talk for another hour um which is just me in general to be fair but <laughs> <laughs> yeah I that you know this is an overview of this particular series for anybody who's listening and you've not watched it I don't know why you're listening but go and watch it there's so much more to talk about come and talk to us about it we'd love to talk more about it I think this is a show I'm going to watch over and over and over again I think it's certainly not one that's gonna uh sort of I've just watched and and goes on a shelf as such it's one that I'm going to constantly think about I think it's so different to have a lot of unlikable characters in a show uh not even unlikable just complex characters in a show um I think it's trying to do something different and do something special I don't think it always hits it we've talked about that in some of the previous episodes and I don't think we sort of we've sort of touched on some of those talking about this I just think it's an extraordinary show I'm so thankful for you Amy because if you hadn't spoken to Ada about it and then Ada hadn't been on a show with Tony and I Dickinson had always been like I'd been like oh I want to watch it it seems right up my street but I, I have quite limited time so if it hadn't been for this wonderful series of events I never would have watched it and now I get to be here in a virtual room with you all talking about it and there's more I want to say I'm doing it already I'm going to wrap it up where can everybody find I was about to start talking about something else then as well (laughs) where can everybody find everybody I'll go first uh I'll go me Tony Ada and then Amy you can as the as the person who started it all you can go at the end and give us your final word so find me at Rhea Carrigan uh on Instagram uh, I also do all the socials for Femon, so at Femon uh, Pod on Instagram and Twitter. We are on Twitter now. Find us at, on our website. I mean, you're here, so you know where we are. But come and talk to us. Come and talk to us about everything. Ask to be guests on our show. We've got loads to talk about. Listen to Ria's questions. Listen to episode one. Episode one of Poetry Theatre will have been out ages ago now. But if you haven't listened to it, go listen to it. It is like sitting in a wonderful green space overhearing two people have like a really interesting intellectual but accessible chats that you can't stop yourself overhearing and listening into so just go and listen to that go to listen to all of our content we're amazing okay echo all of that by the way um this is why i you know immediately you get Ada, you get now real like after meeting Ada, I was like i need somebody to teach for me who should i reach out to and hire Oh, maybe this amazing person. Her, her students love her, by the way. Um, other people have said to me, I love how Ada teaches. Her colleagues, she's an amazing human being. So, um, and you all know, you all know that. And that show is great. Good job on that, Amy. It was delightful. Um, so, yeah. Um, so, anyway, just my website, arfarina.com is the place to get me. Um, you can get to my other stuff. I would, I can talk about my, so if you, Tanya said to me the other day, you went from not doing any social media to having the best social media. Why is that? And I said, because my wife does it all. She is the one who makes it all look pretty. Um, it's true. Every of those cool posts that you see, all the things, 
she is a magician. She made my website look beautiful. So my wife is the superstar. And she, after Tanya said that, then she made, she's like, you even made a QR code for your website. What is that? So I was telling Lee about it. So then she made one for Tanya and sent it to her. So Tanya has a QR code now. So, um, so go to my website and think, boy, Tony's wife is super awesome. I agree. She is. Um, anyway, that's where you reach me. I don't know when this comes out, Bria, but, um, my book, the first book of my series, comes out at the end of May. So that could be some months from now. Yes, it will come out before the end of May. <laughs> okay, I don't know when this is coming much, out. So some, much. Okay, so in two months, please, you can click a link on my website. I'm sure I the mean, pre-buy I will be up I wish you had a slightly more faith in uh, my editing. and. I just don't know. Skills, no, because episode two is not out yet. It's not about your editing. It's about I don't know what your plan is because you you've got the long vision for Femme. I do so anyway, have the long vision. ARFranny.com. Maybe there's a link to buy my book. I would like it if you did. Thank you. Yes, all of that. And thank you, Ria, for your long vision on FemOn. Um, it's been a pleasure talking Dickinson um, and finally bringing all three of you together in one space. Um, feels like a dream come true. Uh, you can find me at aamccartney.com. Um, reluctantly on social media as well. Um, AA underscore McCartney. And um, Amy, how about you? Oh, yeah. Um, at Amy Bobeda on Twitter, on my website, Amy Glenn with one N, Bobeda.com. Um, by the time this comes out, there will be two books that you could click a link on my website to order. Um, one is about menstrual poetry and one is about bird poetry. And I hope that that is a hopeful book. Um, it has been such an honor to be here and talk about what really feels like a very unrealistic show to have been made that is also so timely and poignant um, at this juncture of American history. So it has been an honor and my mother says that Ada has a beautiful podcasting voice. Completely agree. She is correct. Wonderful. 